meal you ever ate. Now that may be hard to do because we have been blessed to have lots of good meals in our lives, haven't we? But if you can think back to a really particularly excellent meal that you had, then if you are a cook or you're advising a cook, you'd say, this is what made that meal so good and this is what you ought to do if you want to prepare a really great meal, right? Or for you fellas who are uh, sports fiends, can you remember the best maybe football game you ever saw? You know, some of them stand out, don't they? Really exceptional. You remember those games and you remember the things that were done in those games. Maybe especially you remember the coaching decisions that were made in that game. So if you were a football coach, you would want to study the very best game in history so that you could learn what really successful coaches do and imitate them. That makes sense. Can you remember the coolest car you ever saw? Well, I see some, I see, you can see some of the young people nodding their heads. Yeah, I remember a, a really cool car. Could, could I put my vote in for a 63 split window Corvette? That's one that stands out in my mind. You know, cars have gotten better and better as far as technically and drivability, drivability and, and, uh, reliability. Cars just keep getting better and better, but it's, it's, as regards to that basic styling, some of those old ones still stand out in our mind. So if you were a car designer, you would study some of those things and say, these stand out as attributes you want to incorporate in your car design. You get the idea. Okay, you get the idea I'm pursuing there? All right, one more question. Do you remember the greatest sermon you ever personally heard? Do you remember the greatest sermon you ever heard? You know, lots of us uh, have a favorite preacher that we always loved to hear. And maybe even for that preacher that we really liked, we remember one of his sermons in particular that just stands out in our mind. Points were made that maybe we always remembered and have never forgotten. Greatest preacher and greatest sermon. Actually, there's a better preacher and a better sermon than the one I just called upon you to remember. And the preacher that I have in mind is Jesus Christ. And the sermon that I have in mind is the Sermon on the Mount. Today we want to look at the Sermon on the Mount just to make some simple observations about the sermon itself. Uh, and so we're going to call it the greatest sermon of all time. And, and we'll be looking to that in our lesson this morning. We know, remember, you remember, of course, it's recorded in Matthew for us in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. We stop again just briefly to add words of welcome to those that have already been offered. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we appreciate the fact that we have this occasion to come together to worship God. This coronavirus thing is not going away, and some of our folks even today have had to stay away because of exposure to the virus, and we understand that. Uh, we, we long for a getting back to normal, and we hope that that will happen. But we're just grateful that we can still do this, that we can still come together and worship God, and we're grateful that we have been primarily spared from any serious consequence of the virus here at College View. Thank you for being here this morning. All right, the greatest sermon of all time. Now, 
Someone might say, well, why should we all be concerned about that? Why, why isn't this just a topic that preachers dwell on? Well, I think preachers should sit up and take notice about how Jesus preached. And we should try to preach like Jesus preached. And so this is a good study text for preachers in doing the work of preaching. But I want to tell you, there's, there's something to be gained for listeners as well. Because in this sermon, you see what, as a listener, you ought to be looking for. Uh, how you should judge preaching. Because this is the greatest preacher and the greatest sermon of all time. Therefore, this sets the bar, doesn't it? This, this establishes what you should be looking for in preachers and their sermons. Okay, so, it's, so this is a good text for preachers to study. But I think it's a good text for us all to study because it tells us how it ought to be. So, let's look at uh, the greatest sermon of all time. My very first simple observation about this sermon is it's not very long. The sermon is not very long. You can read it out loud in 15, maximum 20 minutes probably. You could just very slowly and carefully read this sermon out loud. It's not very long. Most preachers, including me, have whole series of lessons based on the Sermon on the Mount. And we have talked for hours about the things that took Jesus just a few minutes to talk about. Uh, and so maybe a first lesson is that great sermons don't have to be real long. Some people think that that's so. In fact, especially preachers of a generation ago used to think sermons, if, if sermons were less than an hour long, they weren't worth hearing. You know, uh, in fact, I knew some older preachers who would refer to short sermons as sermonettes, and they thought that they were not appropriate, just didn't get the job done. Uh, I heard of one preacher, and some of you know who I'm talking about, he would preach his lesson, he would look at the clock, and if an hour hadn't taken, if, if it hadn't passed an hour yet, he'd start back over and start making the same points over again just to make sure that sermon filled all of that length of time that he felt was so necessary. Here's the greatest sermon of all time, and it's not that incredibly long. So that's, that's the first point. We can, be, we can be concise. We can say what needs to be said, and it doesn't have to take all day in order to do it. The greatest sermon of all time wasn't all that very long. Secondly, a simple observation about the sermon is that it contained simple language. It seems that some preachers want to impress their audience by using big words and what we might refer to as theological jargon. You know, church speak has come to be a term these days. Preachers want to use church speak. They want to impress people with their language. I'll tell you something about the Sermon on the Mount. You don't need a dictionary at hand as you read the Sermon on the Mount in order to understand what Jesus was talking about. He used simple language. And the fact of the matter is that the original audience who heard what he had to say, they got it. They understood it. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. You see it? They understood what Jesus was saying, and they even understood that what Jesus was saying and how he said it put him at odds with or clearly was different from their own scribes whom they had been listening to for so long. 
I remember, I always remember a story about a fellow who went to hear preaching and the next day at work, his co-worker asked him, well, what did the preacher preach about? And the fellow responded, I don't know. He didn't say. And you get the idea that here's a guy who preached, but his message was so not understandable that the guy didn't even, under, didn't even know, couldn't even relate what the theme of the sermon was about. Could I say this? And I may be inventing a word here. Uh, understandability. Understandability should be a hallmark of great preaching. And if the audience can't understand what you're saying, then you haven't, you haven't done your job well. And in the case of Jesus, he was clear. Notice what Paul said. This comes from the text that was read for us earlier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning verse 1, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And my speech and my preaching was not in, with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Notice, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Who are we trying to highlight here? Who are we trying to impress? What are we trying to accomplish? What do we want the outcome to be? We want people to be impressed with the power of God, not with the oratorical skills of the speaker. Paul further said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. That's what we need, isn't it? We need great plainness of speech. We don't need people leaving and they can't, they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand the message. They can't, or maybe it was done in such a way they can't retain any of the points that were made. We need to use simple language, understandable speech. That was clearly the case with the greatest sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount. I would add that Jesus' sermon had a serious tone. Jesus was not speaking to entertain his audience. And although his tone wasn't, I don't think you would say that the tone of the Sermon on the Mount was somber. It was still serious. Jesus wasn't telling jokes in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't find a joke in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, yes, he did draw parallels to daily life to help his listeners grasp the point that he was making. But even at that, he didn't go into long, drawn-out illustrations of the points that he wanted to make. You know, sometimes when you hear preachers preach, especially the preaching of our modern day, the illustrations are the main thing. The storytelling is the highlight. And that was not the case with Jesus. It had, his message had a serious tone. For example, just take one example from the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. Now stop right there. You know, this obviously comes from Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. He's making the point, ask God for what you need. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. Now, he, he gives an illustration of that. What man is there of you... Whom if his son asks bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks a fish, will give him a serpent. Now, wait a minute. I, I see that, don't you? Can you imagine a father and his son asks bread? Instead of bread, he gives him a stone. He asks for a fish. Instead of that, he gives him a serpent. No father would do that. No, no father would even think to do such a thing unless he's some kind of perverted, abusive individual. No father wants to do that. Well, here's his point then. 
If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask? I get it, don't you? I see that. That is a point very easy to understand. And it should encourage me to pray to God because He wants to give me the good things that I need. The Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 31, rather, Acts 20, verse 31 said, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. I don't think that the Apostle Paul was telling them jokes or humorous illustrations when he said, I was warning you night and day with tears. I was warning you. And so again, the greatest sermon of all time in the case of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was serious in tone. I believe preachers ought to take note of that. I also think audiences ought to be aware that when we're preaching the Word of God, it's serious business and should be understood as such. I would say in analyzing the greatest sermon of all time that it had both negative and positive elements. The Sermon on the Mount points out the wrongs in people's thinking and lives, and it contrasts that with right attitudes and right conduct. Jesus was not afraid to offend the listener with what he had to say. For example, I don't imagine that the Pharisees were particularly happy when Jesus said, in Matthew 5, verse 20, from the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religiously elite people of Jesus' day, right? And Jesus is saying here, your righteousness is going to have to exceed theirs. They're not getting the job done. Do you think that the Pharisees were particularly pleased with that message? I doubt it, don't you? And yet Jesus was not afraid to engage at what you would have to say is a negative point here, he made that negative point. And so the Sermon on the, on the Mount was both negative and positive. There's a lot of talk about this. I want to spend just a minute more talking about this positive and negative preaching. We hear so much about that in our day and time. And we hear that preachers are urging, you just need to be positive, 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 positive. Eliminate the negative. You cannot dwell on the negative. I've even talked to preachers and heard of preachers who specifically said, I'm just going to be all positive. I'm not going to deal with negative things. I want to tell you, that seriously misses the mark of great preaching. Great preaching is both positive and negative. I got looking back through some old lessons. Back in 2009, boy, time flies, doesn't it? Back in 2009... We engaged in a Sunday night sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the purpose of that series was specifically to analyze it for positive and negative aspects of the Sermon on the Mount. Now we did that again over several Sunday nights, but what we did basically was take the Sermon on the Mount apart, paragraph by paragraph, and after we'd analyzed the paragraph and what it said, then we gave it a score. Was this positive, negative? Was it somewhat positive? Somewhat? And we gave a percentage to that. We didn't, we, and we had no preconceived uh, notion about it. 
just paragraph by paragraph, we rated it on positive versus negative. When we got done, we added it all up. You know how it turned out? Positive and negative. And this, this, is, this, by the way, was just our subjective analysis. But when we got done, it turned out that this, we, we analyzed the Sermon on the Mount to be 47% positive and 53% negative. A statistical dead heat. An even score. One to one almost, right? Now, wait a minute. This is the greatest sermon of all time. This is Jesus, our Lord, preaching the greatest sermon of all time. And it was half and half. Now, what, what, is, what point does that make about preachers? And what should preachers understand from that? Well, preachers should understand you can't get the job done. You are not doing the job if you're just dwelling on positive things and never talking about negative things. Preachers ought to understand that. But I'll tell you something else. To listeners, this says what you ought to expect. In fact, this says what you ought to demand. And if the preacher is just preaching positive things, he's not doing his job. He's not thoroughly fulfilling his role. It takes both. And the greatest sermon of all time had both negative and positive elements to it. The Sermon on the Mount contrasts popular teaching with God's truth. Uh, A a whole major section of the Sermon on the Mount starts out by saying, you have heard, but I say to you. Actually, that begins in chapter 5, verse 21. Ye have heard, Jesus said, but I say to you. Now, obviously, that, that statement in itself, now it goes on, it's going to continue. It starts there at chapter 5, verse 21, runs clear to the end of chapter uh, 5, I think at verse 48 is the end of chapter 5. It's a contrast, isn't it? Very clearly, this is contrasting what was the popular notion of the day with what the actual truth of God was. That's what Jesus was doing. I think, if I counted right, that expression or the equivalent of that expression is found six times in the ensuing verses. Ye have heard, but I say unto you. Now what conclusion would you draw from that? I believe that that points out that Jesus did not subscribe to the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe. Jesus did not hold to that. It does matter what you believe. You may have heard, but I'm telling you, Jesus said, it matters what you believe. It furthermore points out that we do not and should, we do not have to, nor should we try to follow popular trends in order to maintain relevance. And I'm afraid we got a lot of preachers doing that. Following the popular trends, thinking that that's the only way to be relevant. Jesus is teaching this contrast between the popular ideas and his truth. This clearly shows that one is not as good as another. And people have that idea so much religiously today. One thing is as good as another. Believe whatever you want to believe. It doesn't matter. And that's definitely not seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Finally, I want to suggest to you that the greatest sermon of all time links the heart uh, with all of the real problems of sin. Look at a couple familiar statements. Chapter 5, verse 21, beginning... Ye have heard that it was said by them old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you 
that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. You see what Jesus is doing there? The emphasis had always been, Thou shalt not kill. Don't kill. But what did Jesus do? Jesus said, you know, really, that starts in the heart, doesn't it? It starts when you have a wrong attitude toward your brother. You would never get to the point of killing him if you hadn't in your heart been wrong and corrupt all along, right? So hatred would lead to something extreme like murder, but it starts in the heart, right? In the, in the ensuing verses, verse 27, beginning, Ye have heard that it is said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Their emphasis had always been on the overt outward act, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus said it really starts in the heart. It starts with lust, right? A fellow is not going to commit adultery unless he allows his heart to dwell on lustful thoughts. It starts in the heart. And the Sermon on the Mount just goes on and on, showing that uh, an evil heart leads to all sorts of bad things. Uh, Our work, our words, so much of what is wrong in our lives is linked to a problem of the heart. All right, there's the Sermon on the Mount. Real easy, simple observations. I think there's six there, six simple observations from the greatest sermon of all time. The sermon, as we were saying, contrasts what the world values with what God values. The sermon contrasts what is important to God versus what is important to men. And it points out the fact that most people are on the wrong road. Isn't that sad to say? But the Sermon on the Mount clearly indicates that most people are going the wrong direction. Our sermons need to be like the Sermon on the Mount. And if we want good sermons as preachers, there's a lot to learn from that. But as listeners, as we've been saying right along, as listeners, there's a lot for you to understand from that too, what you should expect and demand by way of preaching. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. Good preaching motivates obedience to God. That being the case, as we end the lesson this morning, we're going to ask, have you been obedient to God? If that means you, if that question leads to the fact that you have not yet obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation, then you need to do that. Hearing the truth, believe it, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins. We'd be anxious to assist in your obedience this morning. We'd be thrilled to engage in further study. If you have questions, how can we help you? If you're a Christian already, but you know that you have not been living the way God wants you to live, you need to come back to Him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.